0: You are listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a bi monthly podcast that explores stories inspired by the collections of the Lloyd Library and Museum, located in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. If you're familiar with the Lloyd, You probably know that the library holds vast volumes of historic books, periodicals, and archival materials about plants and nature, with works published from 1493 to the present. But you might be surprised to learn that some of those works are written for children. A recent exhibit at the Lloyd, titled The Gift of Wonder, A History of Nature Books for Children, helped me appreciate nature and science books for this young demographic. The exhibit traces juvenile nonfiction from the early 18th century to the present, beginning with dense books, like a description of a great variety of animals and vegetables, published in 1744, through beautiful books of the Victorian era, with embossed covers and pen and ink illustrations inside, and in the colorful gems of the 20th century, like the giant golden book of biology, illustrated by Charlie Harper and published in 1961. I was enchanted to follow this evolution and wanted to learn more about the development of this type of content for young people. What's it like to write for children? And how do children's nature and science books today compare with the historic ones I saw at the Lloyd? For an insider's take, I went to author Mary Kay Carson. Mary Kay has been writing about wildlife, space, weather, nature, and history for young readers for more than 25 years, and is the award-winning author of more than 50 nonfiction books for children. Welcome to Between the Leaves, Mary Kay. You've been writing children's books for a long time. How did you get started? I got started writing for kids at a
1: science magazine called Super Science at Scholastic. In New York City I had moved there after a stint in the Peace Corps to do a science writing program at NYU and um, dropped out after a semester and got a job at Scholastic and so that's how I started and once you start writing for kids writing for grown-ups sort of just becomes
0: unfun (laughs) okay Well, your books are all nonfiction, and most of them relate to science in one way or another. Tell us more about the kinds of books you write. They are mostly science, and I write a lot of books
1: that are about scientists actually working in the field right now. So, Scientists chasing tornadoes or studying um, coyotes in cities or um, a recent mission to Pluto. So a lot of the books have kind of a you-are-there-tagging-along-as-the-scientist-is-working kind of feel. What are some of the specific topics
0: that you've explored?
1: Um, I've explored a lot of space topics, planets and stars and the moon and different parts of our solar system and beyond, and also weather topics, especially exciting weather like hurricanes and tornadoes. Um, I've also written a number of books that are biographies of inventors like Alexander Graham Bell or the Wright Brothers, and then I also um, especially currently, write a lot of books about wildlife and native wildlife and plants.
0: And I know with the the biographies um, and, and other books, perhaps, you include a lot of active exercises and lab projects and, and things like that. Tell us about that. A- you know, it's kind of um, another way
1: to engage kids. So some kids are much more interested in grabbing some materials and trying an experiment, say, than, you know, reading a couple of chapters about somebody's life. So it's just another way to engage either a different kind of kid or a different part of a kid's imagination. And it's also something that teachers are looking for. So it's something that that publishers
0: are providing. Seems like that makes it really fun for yeah. kids. Yeah. And as you said, uh, it's really fun for you. So what do you like most about it? What's the best part of writing science books for kids? I think that
1: the best part of it for me personally is just that uh, just that process of tapping into sort of the the innate wonder that kids have. And I feel like I have that still, especially with nature and space and, you know, weather phenomena. And so to be able to tap into that for kids is fun. And it reminds you, you know, what it's like to be a kid and to see
0: things and learn things for the first time. You have been very successful and you've earned recognition and awards. Um, But I'm sure there are some tough times between Getting that recognition and awards. um, What are some of the challenges? I would say the biggest challenge is the publishing industry itself
1: has changed and is changing at such a phenomenal pace, and it's very difficult to keep up, and it's very different than it was, um, you know, even a decade or two ago, where People got on with a certain publisher, and they were sort of groomed um, through the process. Now it's just much more competitive, and there's much more turnover, and, you know, every book could be your last kind of attitude. So it's, I would say the business end of it is definitely the most challenging.
0: Writing is pretty much a solitary endeavor, It must be hard to keep at it sometimes. What motivates you? Deadlines motivate me. But I think the thing that motivates me
1: also is that books mean more to kids than they do to grown-ups. Like, we all remember books that we read as kids, whereas we probably don't remember what book we read a year ago. And um, especially when I visit schools and talk to kids about... My books, and you know, they write me letters and draw pictures, and you just can feel that you're really making an impact directly on somebody's life just by writing about something that um, they didn't know about. So I, that motivates me.
0: I know when we were together and looked at the, the books that are part of the Lloyd's uh, children's book exhibit um that you mentioned uh, your own desire to want to save wildlife and save nature can you talk about that a little bit you know it's the um
1: the famous leopold quote that you know we don't we only care about what we love and so you have to love things first before you care about them and and do anything to help them and i think kids have an innate love for animals in general. And somehow we lose that at some point growing up, or it becomes just one of many loves. But I think by letting kids see how grown ups are helping animals and helping save environments and
0: habitats, um, that they can see themselves in those roles. As an adult. And as you said, it makes them want to protect and and save what we're losing so quickly. And
1: see ways that that can be done, right? There's so much bad news and doom and gloom. um, They also need to be able to see that lots of good people are helping.
0: You and I had the opportunity to look at some of the books in the Lloyd's Gift of Wonder exhibit. The oldest books, especially those published in the 18th and 19th century, look a lot different than children's books today. What struck you about them? Well, most of them you wouldn't have thought that they were books for children
1: just by seeing them, right? They were um, you know, hardbound and sort of anonymous looking um, and long, right? So they didn't look like a, a, an 8 by 10 children's book with lots of illustrations on the cover and a jacket. So they look different and in general are longer than most children's books are today with fewer illustrations and more text. And also they seemed, just by browsing through them, the the text seems less leveled, you know, less um, customized for a certain age group to read it. And also, I was kind of struck by how they all seemed aimed at a kind of a small segment of the population. You would imagine them being in homes of wealthy families who had tutors or governesses or I'm not sure. So they didn't seem like they had a mass appeal
0: for kids. So the historic books in that collection seem a lot different than the science books that you and others write for children today. It used to be that nonfiction or science
1: topics for children um, were primarily for kids to be able to write a report, right? So they were basically an encyclopedia article put in book form, with some photographs or charts. And as that was completely replaced by online sources, right, all the encyclopedias are online, there's lots and lots of information online that kids can use,
0: then science books for kids had to sort of remake themselves. What can books offer that the Internet doesn't?
1: I think there's a lot to be said just for the tactile part of it, you know, especially for kids and to be able to, um, you know, go back and forth on pages and actually, you know, touch the pictures and be read to in somebody's lap. And of course, you can sit in grandma's lap and, you know, read something on a Kindle or an iPad, but it's not quite the same thing. And, um, And then I also think, there's something about um, a book is like a standalone thing that you read it and then it's finished, whereas it's not on a device that does a hundred other things. Yeah. A focus, there's like a focus there.
0: And just thinking about the other side of things, what can digital media offer us that uh, books can't? For science specifically,
1: um, Digital media can be really good at showing processes. And so instead of, you know, a series of photos that that show um, a tadpole hatching from an egg and growing into a frog, right, you can kind of see an animation or uh, a speeded up video of that at once. So those are things that are harder to show um, in print And that goes for volcanoes erupting or molecules bonding, especially things that you can't really see anyway, are sometimes better animated with video. So there's definitely some great things about digital media.
0: So with all of that other media that's available, is it still important for children to read books? I think
1: it is. Because in a way it's kind of, I hate to call it an antidote to digital media, but it can be in a way and that it forces you to focus so
0: much and to be alone in your own head and to process it. Some people have expressed that as using your imagination muscle, and that seems like such a good thing for kids and all of us. It is, and you could also argue that it's an empathy muscle,
1: because especially reading about animals or other people in books is a way to sort of understand what life is like for them. I think those are skills that are important for critical thinking and focusing and sort of persevering through things. Maybe you're reading a page and you don't really understand what's going on, but you just keep going through and then you figure it out. So besides the content in the books
0: themselves,
1: I feel like the act of reading has its own benefits.
0: Adults have been encouraging children to read and study nature for a long time so we weren't surprised when we saw that some of the books in the library had been given as gifts to children by the Lloyd brothers and others. Books are still popular gifts for kids. Who's giving them, and why do you think they're perennial favorites as gifts for kids? I see a lot of grandparents uh, buying
1: books for children, as well as other adults in a child's life. You know, at a birthday party, you don't really see kids bringing other kids' books, right, as gifts. For an adult, buying a book on a particular topic is a way to either support an interest that the child has. So if the child likes to collect stamps, here's a book about stamp collecting. Or it can also be a way to encourage an interest that you would like the child to have.
0: And we are all sustaining readership, I suppose, (laughs) in a way, um, helping to bring children up as readers and to enjoy reading.
1: Right. And that's a weird thing, isn't it, about the children's publishing industry is that you're writing for somebody who doesn't really buy books. So, you know, your market is really parents or librarians or whoever buys books for kids, and you hope that they know what a kid would want.
0: Most of us know from our own experiences as children that illustration is a huge part of what makes books appealing for kids. Talk a little bit about illustration and other visual components. How does it impact the written story? It impacts it
1: quite a bit and sort of the ratio of how much it impacts the, the text and the story is related to the age group. So for older kids, illustrations or photographs or, or whatever sort of reemphasize points in the text or illustrate something that they're reading about. So if it's about a scientist who is collaring grizzly bears, there's pictures of scientists collaring grizzly bears. But for younger kids, and especially picture books, the illustrations often tell in a a completely different narrative that's not even in the text. And so that's a much more complex um, back and forth that I write the text and, and, and an illustrator makes the illustrations, and maybe I need to change some of the text so it goes better with what's been created or
0: the other way around. That seems like it could be challenging for the author to have their, their story changed in response to the illustration.
1: It is, but you know that going in.
0: That's, that's what
1: picture books are about. They're split between an author and an illustrator, and usually they have no contact. And that's the way the publisher wants it. And that's because they want the book to have depth on both ends and not just be a repeat of pictures and text. They want two totally different things.
0: What are you working on now? What are some of the projects? Right now, I'm working on a couple of things. I have a,
1: a couple of books that are coming out in the future and one of them is called plant spotting and it's how to identify trees and wildflowers and also mosses and ferns and um mushrooms and that won't be out for another year and a half um and then I'm also doing edits on a picture book that I've just uh, seen the art for, for the first time. And that's a good example of um, how that works because the picture book that I wrote was is about wolves and wolves being introduced into Yellowstone and all of the ecosystem-wide changes that have happened because of it. And the illustrations showed up and there's, there are people in it. There's like a grandfather and a, and a granddaughter who are walking around seeing some of these things. So there were no people in the manuscript, but that was added in. And then my husband and I are, are doing another what we call the Scientists in the Field book, which is sort of a ta- these tag-along books that uh, you feel like you're there with the scientists working. That's about... Um, there's an urban coyote project in Chicago there has been for 20 years. They've studied the the coyotes there, and um, they collar them, and they, they chip the pups. And so we're supposed to go out there next week to collar some coyotes in Chicago in the middle of the night and uh,
0: get started on that project. You mentioned uh, people in the illustrations. <laughs> People are so problematic. <laughs> well, that brings up the question of representation, and uh, how, how do you handle that? To me, the most important thing is the
1: child who's reading the book. And so I always try to, try to put myself in the place of the child. And if a child is reading a book and they see themselves represented or not, or fail to see themselves represented. Like, what does that mean for that child? That's kind of my measure, my metric that I use, is is how the child is going to feel. And it can be very complicated because we are a very diverse nation, and there's been a lot of wrongs in the past that still need to be made right. And children are much more diverse than grown-ups, right? The next generation is much more diverse than grown-ups. And so it's even more important that that everyone feels included. And especially, you know, we it's become a trope, but you know, we live in such divided times. It's like where do you start to sort of put that back together? And I would argue that children would be a good place to start. <laughs> So, but it's, as an author, you definitely only have so much control. You know, it's the publisher's money. They're paying for it. It is a business. So,
0: you say what you can say politely and hope for the best. It does seem like a a complicated... It is. ...decision-making process. Yes. And an imperfect one. So, do you ever run out of ideas? Where do your ideas come from? I never run out of ideas
1: because I have just folders and folders and folders of ideas. But ideas are not evergreen. And so when I'm wanting to spend time on something, um, I often go through those folders and something that maybe some information I gathered on something, you know, like how A scientist is studying hummingbirds to make some sort of new kind of drone, say. All of a sudden, um, we'll click because I read something else about it. Or, you know, now there's some toy that that connects with. You know what I'm saying? So then when you look for them, you can sort of see when their time is right. And also, you're going to have a hard time selling a book about something that's just been overdone recently. But that's a good thing about kids, like... We used to say at the Science Magazine, because we had a news section, we'd say everything's news to a first grader. So mm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> every generation has to learn about the Wright brothers, right?
0: <laughs> what is the future of children's science books? I think that they're
1: gonna get especially books for younger kids, it's picture books and books for Um, you know, kids up to eight and nine years old, I think they're just going to be more and more and more creative. You know, it's amazing now the kind of books that are being written and, you know, authors have really stepped up to be super creative in the books that they're writing and have amazing illustrations so I think, you know, in the short term, it's, it's really, I think, the golden age is going to continue.
0: Well, I hope that the field and you <laughs> continue to have great success. Thank you for joining us today and um, all the best to you and your work. Thank you, Meg. Our guest today has been author Mary Kay Carson. You can find her at marykaycarson.com. Thanks for listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a bi-monthly podcast of the Lloyd Library and Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. Produced by Meg Hanrahan. Audio editing and mixing by Michael Ronstadt. Want to learn more about the Lloyd and its collections? You can visit online anytime at lloydlibrary.org.